Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We recently, not too far back, ran our Giorgio Vasari podcast as a Saturday classic. And today's topic sort of tangentially touches him on the timeline. Not entirely tangential. Prospero Fontana was a painter in Bologna, Italy in the 16th century. and He was relatively successful because he was skilled and he worked quickly. He stayed busy with commissions because he just had a track record for dependability, particularly in fresco work and portraiture. And he worked for Giorgio Vasari on a number of projects. Prospero Vasari is germane to today's topic because... He was today's topic's father. We are talking about another painter, Prospero's daughter, Lavinia Fontana. Uh, So let's get into it. Lavinia Fontana was born in Bologna, Italy in 1552. We don't know the exact date she was born. As we just mentioned, her father was a painter. Her mother, Antonia de Bartolomeo de Bonardis, was from a family that made its fortune in publishing. The Fontanas were not nobles, but they did live comfortably, and Lavinia's baptismal sponsors were men from the Bolognese nobility. Lavinia was one of three children in the family. She had a sister and a brother named Emilia and Falminio. Both of them died, though, not in their childhood, but when they were young adults. Yeah, one had been a teenager and one, I think, was in their early 20s. 
Lavinia studied under her father, who was a leading member of the Painters Guild in Bologna, and he worked in the Mannerist style, which is what he taught Lavinia. He had also taught his other children, Emilia and Falminio, but Lavinia was the one that was just most naturally gifted at painting. She was educated beyond art. She was very well educated in mathematics, Latin, and music, as well as her painting classes with her father. Mannerism, just as a quick refresher, was very popular in 16th century Italy. It originated in Florence, but it wasn't referred to as mannerism until much later in the 18th century. This period follows right on the heels of work that was done by da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael, and it shows a move away from the classicism and naturalistic beauty that those artists sought to create in their work. Mannerism is slightly more stylized. Sometimes it can even be bizarre. It slightly exaggerates otherwise realistic compositions so that, say, a sitter's limbs might be a little too long or their head a little too small. Incredible detail in the foreground is often combined with a really sparse or unrealistically simple background. As she reached her 20s, Lavinia transitioned into a painting career, which was an unusual step for a woman in Bologna in the 1570s. She is often referred to as the first woman painter in Western Europe to have a successful career. It's a little more nuanced than that. There were other women in Italy making a living in the arts, most famously Sofonisba Anguissola, who was about 20 years older than Lavinia. These two women are often discussed in tandem when considering art of the period, and they were also compared to one another at the time by their contemporaries. Sofonisba, who could and probably will be her own episode at some point, was born into the nobility, although at a low level that did not come with wealth, and she became a court painter. Other women artists who managed to make a living at it before Fontana worked exclusively at convents, creating devotional art. So what sets Lavinia apart is that she was not noble by birth, and as she advanced her art career, she made her living through commissions from a variety of clients, like her father had. The groundwork for this career had been laid very carefully by Prospero. He encouraged clients to commission Lavinia's first professional works— He had also given away small pieces she'd painted to help establish her reputation. So while she was unique as a professional, she benefited from her father serving as her supporter, both technically as a painter and as sort of an early public relations manager. Yeah, he made some other very significant moves in her life that we'll talk about. Um, The first signed work that we know of by Lavinia is a portrait of a boy from 1575, There isn't a record of who this child was. He is dressed in rather fancy clothes, so he was likely the son of a wealthy family. Although it is a very early work, many of the hallmarks of Lavinia's painting style are already present. For example, the fabrics of the boy's clothing are rendered in just incredible detail. The pose is quite formal. The boy does not look relaxed in his body posture, and he makes direct eye contact with the viewer. In a painting estimated to have been created in 1575 titled Mystic Marriage of St. Catherine, St. Catherine of Alexandria is shown having a vision of Christ. There are numerous works by many artists that have this title or a similar one that depicts the same basic idea, although sometimes it's St. Catherine of Alexandria and others St. Catherine of Siena. Both show the moment when one, or in 
some cases, rarely, both of these women pledged their lives to Christ using the framework of marriage that is frequently invoked as part of describing a woman becoming a nun. In Fontana's version of this moment, Catherine is shown in a soft golden yellow gown with a red cape that's draped around her shoulders. She is kneeling with her hands posed as in prayer before the infant Jesus, who is being held by his mother Mary and appears to be blessing her. Above the main scene is an entire secondary group of angels in the clouds. They are all rendered in very dreamy pastels. In February 1577, when she was 25, Lavinia married a man named Giovanni Paolo Zappi, often also named as Gianpaolo. He had been a student under her father. This marriage was unusual in that, although Zappi was a painter, his work didn't become the priority. It was quite the opposite. Gianpaolo supported Lavinia's career and even became her agent. That arrangement is often pointed at for its progressive and unusual nature, and it was that, but it was also arranged to be that way by Lavinia's father, Prospero. Giovanni was the son of a noble. He was not first in line to inherit, but his status was going to elevate Lavinia's social rank. So you might think that the marriage agreement would favor him considerably, but in fact, it laid out some pretty unusual terms. First, there would be no dowry that was in light of Lavinia's earnings potential. That was a condition that may have been stipulated by Prospero because he would have had difficulty coming up with a sum that would set this new couple up in a household of their own. He was in many ways successful, but he still struggled when it came to managing his money. Second, the couple had to live with Prospero, who would support them in exchange for Lavinia continuing to work with him. Basically, Prospero, who saw his daughter's earning potential, promised the Zappi family that she could be the breadwinner. There was also language in the contract that Gianpaolo would also paint, and money that he brought in would be kind of part of this family collective. But it appears that he was just not really at the same level of Lavinia, and he stopped trying to have an art career pretty early on. While this arrangement undoubtedly benefited Prospero Fontana by keeping his daughter as his assistant, in the long term, it also meant that she was supported in her artistic career by her spouse. Giovanni handled all of her business deals, something that would have been difficult or impossible for her to do herself as a woman. He was also a stay-at-home father to their children, and they had a lot over the course of their marriage. They had 11 kids, although sadly only three of them survived past childhood. We are going to talk more about Lavinia's painting after we take a quick break to hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. 
So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even before her marriage, Lavinia's skills as a portraitist were widely recognized. Her father-in-law, Severo Zappi, noted her work in a letter that he wrote her before she and Giovanni were married. Lavinia had sent him two portraits, and he was quite pleased with them. And in addition to portraits of other people, Lavinia painted self-portraits, though not very many. And those self-portraits offer an interesting window into how she saw herself and how she presented herself to the world. And, as noted in a piece of writing by Catherine A. MacGyver, Professor Emerita of Art History at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, what's really, really interesting is that Lavinia did not paint herself as an artist. In her 1577 painting, Self-Portrait at the Virginal, which was one of the portraits she sent to her future father-in-law, she's seated at a small harpsichord. An attendant is standing behind her holding a music book. Her painting easel is in the image, but it's sitting empty in the background, and she's dressed in layered, jeweled clothes that would have been popular with the nobility of the day. In Latin, at the top left of the image is the note, Lavinia, the unmarried daughter of Prospero Fontana, took this, her image, from the mirror, 1577. Art historians have interpreted this painting as being Lavinia's assurance to her future relatives that she's a lady of refinement with a career that can support her family. 
As an aside, this was a time when Bologna was kind of ahead of a lot of other places in terms of women's education. Women were allowed to enroll at the university, although they couldn't study all of the same subjects as men. Law, medicine, and theology courses were only permitted for male students. But in showing herself in this portrait with the harpsichord as musically accomplished and including a Latin inscription, Lavinia was very carefully and clearly showing her own level of intellect and knowledge in line with the culturally held values of education at the time. In 1579, she painted the tiny self-portrait in the studiolo, which is a circular portrait six inches in diameter showing her in her study. This is a commissioned piece. Collector Alfonso Calcionio already had a self-portrait of Sofonispa Anguissola, and he wanted one of Lavinia to go with it. In the portrait, she's wearing fine court dress with a stiff, ruffled collar, and she's seated at a desk with books and sculptures holding a pen. She also wears a large gold cross, and her gaze is fixed on the viewer, although her head is in a quarter profile so that she's not actually facing the viewer directly. In the 1580s, Lavinia became very popular with women clients in particular. Carlos Cesar Malvesia was a historian in the 17th century who wrote a book on Bologna's famous artists, and this is often referenced as an important source when it comes to studying Fontana, although he wrote it in 1678, which was more than 65 years after Lavinia's death. So keep in mind, he does not always have firsthand accounts. In it, he writes, quote, For some time, all the ladies of the city would compete in wishing to have her close to them, treating her and embracing her with extraordinary demonstrations of love and respect, considering themselves fortunate to have seen her on the street or to have meetings in the company of the curious young woman. The greatest thing they desired would be to have her paint their portraits, prizing them in such a way that in our day, no greater prices could be charged by a Van Dyck or Justus Sustermans. His point was that this popularity among the ladies of Bologna's upper class had actually pretty steeply driven up the prices of Fontana's work. There have been scholars over the years who have made the case that the fact that Lavinia was a woman was part of her success with Bologna's women because they felt more comfortable sitting for a woman artist. She clearly became friends with some of them. Several became godmothers to her children. Before the 1580s, Fontana also had a lot of clients who were members of the intelligentsia, Academics of the day often turned to her to capture their likenesses. But as this increase in demand for fashion portraits from the society ladies increased, the prices rose too high for scholars. She painted fewer and fewer portraits of Italy's great thinkers. There's one woman in particular who's often seen as the true turning point in Fontana's career, and that is Laudomia Gozzadina. In 1584, Laudomia commissioned Fontana to paint her family, and after that, the artist's popularity rose very rapidly. That portrait, which is simply called Portrait of the Gozzadini Family, features Laudomia and her sister Ginevra, as well as their husbands. The women are in their wedding gowns. In the center of the portrait is the sister's father, Senator Ulisa Gozzadina, who died 23 years before this painting was created. Laudomia's sister Ginevra was also dead when the painting was commissioned, although she had passed just a few years before in 1581. As Ulisse Gozzadini had arranged both of the marriages pictured in the portrait when the girls were still small children, 
This sort of appears to be a representation of the family that he created through those marriage arrangements. There are additional interpretations of this painting, some of which are kind of fun, uh, that we can talk about on Friday. This painting is really interesting, both in composition and in the ways people have interpreted it over the centuries. There are some obvious elements intended to convey meaning. Each person in it is reaching out to touch one of the others. Ulysses the Patriarch has a hand wrapped around the forearm of his deceased daughter, Geneva, indicating their shared status. Additionally, both of the dead members of the family in the image face to the viewer's right. Those who were alive when it was painted face to the viewer's left. The Domia is stroking a tiny dog, which sits on the table at the center of the image, and that served as a symbol of devotion. Such dogs were also very popular among the wealthy of the time. And Laudomia Gozzadini was one of the women who became a godmother to one of Lavinia's children. That was a son named Severo. Lavinia's next daughter that was born after Severo was named Laudomia, presumably after this friend. The Gozzadini family also became very closely intertwined with the finances of Lavinia and her husband Giampaolo. It appears that they made a lot more commissions for portraits, as records indicate multiple sums of money transferring from the Gozzadini family to Lavinia's. There were many other women with which Lavinia had close and ongoing relationships, both as patrons and as friends. But in the case of Laudomia Gozzadini, we have a lot more detailed records than most of the others. There are many portraits painted by Fontana in which the sitter remains unidentified. But in the case of Gozzadini, there are notations on the back, particularly of that famous family portrait, as to each person in the painting, as well as those records of the financial ties that the two families had. In addition to the portraits, Fontana was commissioned by many households to paint religious subjects. She had started doing this early in her career. There are instances where she signed some of them with her maiden name, so we know that they predate her marriage. One thing of note in the progression of both subject and tone of her religious paintings that's been noted by historians is that As Lavinia matured into life as a mother, her paintings of Mary and the infant Jesus reflect a sweetness that was unique among depictions by other artists. In the 1580s, Lavinia achieved another milestone for women artists. She was the first woman commissioned to create an altarpiece. She did several of these, and one such commission came from the commune of Imola, which is where her husband was from. The resulting work, which is titled Assumption of the Virgin, features St. Cassian and St. Peter Chrysologus. Those are both patron saints of Imola. The significance of being commissioned for altarpieces is really clear when you consider time and place. While Bologna wasn't an epicenter of art patronage in the early part of the 16th century, it was heavily invested in devotional art. One of Bologna's points of pride was another altarpiece in the city that had been painted by Raphael in the early 1500s, so for Fontana to be commissioned to make one was a really big deal. We should also note that there are some altarpieces that remain a little bit unclear uh, that she has in her her body of work that are uh, unclear in terms of their attribution. Because that was an area where her father Prospero Fontana had specialized and one in which Lavinia often assisted, there have been a number of questions over the years about how much either of them worked on each other's commissions and who should get primary credit. 
And Prospero was part of the reason that Lavinia became favored by figures in the church and ended up with public commissions. Prospero had painted quite a few works for churches and had long-term friendships and patronages with some of them. In turn, those relationships helped build similar opportunities for Lavinia. The Archbishop of Bologna, Cardinal Gabriele Pilotti, had known Lavinia as she was her father's assistant, and it was through him that she received some of her commissions for public devotional paintings. And though she was born and raised in Bologna and was very successful there, Lavinia also became celebrated in Rome, and we will talk about her first visit to that city after a sponsor break. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lavinia visited Rome for the first time in 1586. While she was there, she expanded her client base to include Cardinal Francisco Pacheco of Spain, which garnered her a commission for King Philip II of Spain, so very high profile. A subsequent visit to Rome in 1600 led to a similarly momentous commission when Lavinia was asked to paint a chapel altarpiece in the city. Around 1595, though that date is uncertain, Lavinia painted the first of only a few paintings we know of covering mythological figures. This painting is Mars and Venus, and it was groundbreaking. First, this may have been the first time a woman painter, and certainly one of high stature, took on this genre. Mythological paintings had always been the domain of men, and a lot of men have painted Mars and Venus. Second, the figure of Mars is covered only by a cloth, which wraps around his body at the groin level, and Venus is totally naked. For a woman, even a woman painter at the time, it would have been completely scandalous to paint from referencing a live nude model. We don't actually know if Lavinia ever had nude models or if she was painting nudes by referencing the work of male artists. Yeah, there's also been uh, some indication that she said it was from painting the women she had known in her life uh, to to avoid any of that, but it doesn't explain why she uh, does a nude man quite so perfectly. Uh, <laughs> It's, um, I love that painting desperately, and I'll talk a little bit about why in our Behind the Scenes on Friday. In 1599, she painted The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. If you take a quick look at this work when you're considering that title, one thing is blazingly obvious. These are all very white Europeans in Renaissance dress. Though there is still hearty debate today about whether the biblical land of Sheba would be in present-day Africa, specifically Ethiopia, or in the Arabian Peninsula, specifically Yemen, many depictions of the Queen of Sheba created by European artists do definitely whitewash her. There is a little bit of additional nuance to consider uh, in the case of Fontana's painting. It is widely accepted that she created this work as a sort of portrait allegory. She was casting two contemporary Italian nobles in the roles of Solomon and the visiting queen. There is additional debate about exactly who those Italian nobles are. The most popular theory for a long time was that it is Vincenzo I of Gonzaga and Eleonora de' Medici who were the Duke and Duchess of Mantua in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. That aligns with when the painting was created. However, recent developments have introduced an alternate theory. We are going to talk about that later in the episode. Part of the trouble in identifying the models for this piece is that it doesn't appear in any records until the 1700s when it was noted as being in Bologna's Palazzo Zambacari. The work was presumably commissioned, but there's no clear evidence as to who may have contracted Lavinia to paint it. After that, it traveled to Paris in 1859 and was purchased by Napoleon III's cousin, then it was one of only a few paintings saved when the Palais Royal burned during the uprising of the Paris Commune, which means this crosses paths ever so briefly with that recent podcast on Gustave Courbet. 
At that point, the painting moved to London before being purchased by the National Gallery of Ireland. Because she had made connections to so many religious figures in Rome, after her father Prospero died in 1603, Lavinia was invited to move to Rome permanently by Pope Clement VIII. She had enjoyed the favor of popes before him, Pope Gregory XIII, who had been pope from 1572 until his death in 1585, had been a patron. And when Pope Paul V became the 233rd pope in May of 1605, after the very brief papacy of Leo XI, he not only was her patron, but he also gave her the very prestigious position of portraitist in ordinary, i.e. the primary portraitist at the Vatican. Lavinia's largest work was complete while she lived in Rome. That was the martyrdom of St. Stephen, or the stoning of St. Stephen, which she completed in 1604 for the Basilica of San Paolo Fuori le Mura in Rome. Unfortunately, we don't have images of this because the work was lost in a fire in 1823, which destroyed the whole basilica. That means the painting The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon is Fontana's largest surviving work. It's 256 by 325 centimeters or 8.4 by 10.7 feet. Fontana was elected to the Roman Academy of Painters, Academia di San Luca. This was rare not just for a woman, but it was an honor that wasn't given to many male artists either. And this falls in line, though, with her status as the Pope's primary portraitist, as the papacy was very influential on the Academy's leadership. During Lavinia's time in Rome, she achieved just an incredible level of success that any painter, man or woman, would have envied. She was so well-regarded that in 1611, Felice Antonio Cassoni, who was a well-known sculptor at the time, honored Fontana with a bronze medal featuring her image. On one side of the medal is a bust-likeness of the artist in profile wearing a veil. The opposite side of the medal shows her in a very different way. She sits at her easel depicted in full figure. Her hair is loose and wild, and she's painting, and paint brushes and a palette litter the area around her feet. An inscription on this side of the medal translates to, through you, joyous state, I am maintained. In 1613, Fontana completed another nude. This one is titled Minerva Dressing, and it features the Roman goddess of wisdom preparing to pull on a very, very expensive-looking garment. She's in three-quarter profile with her head turned to look at the viewer, and her armor is scattered on the floor. St. Peter's Basilica is visible in the background. Like Mars and Venus, this one continues to raise the question of whether Fontana flouted social mores to work with a nude model. If she did, or even if people thought she did, it didn't really seem to have much of an impact on her work or her social standing. Lavinia died at the age of 62 in Rome on August 11, 1614, Her three sons, Flaminio, Orazio, and Prospero, which were her only surviving children, had it noted on her memorial stone that she had become famous beyond the womanly sphere. So we have talked about a wide range of painting categories that Fontana worked in at a time when portraiture was really considered the appropriate painting style for women. In the book Women Artists, Their Patrons, and Their Publics in Early Modern Bologna, which came out in 2021, author Babette Bone breaks down the number of surviving Fontana works into a small table by type. Based on that, 49% were portraits, 25% were private devotionals, 18% were public devotionals, 
mythological and genre-slash-landscape paintings each make up 4%, and ancient history makes up just 1%. If you do the math there, it adds up to 101, but that's because all of the percentages were rounded up, which is notated on the table. This really speaks to Lavinia's breadth of work, although portraits were obviously her bread and butter. In 2018, the National Gallery of Ireland received a grant for a conservation and research project from the Bank of America Global Art Conservation Project Fund. That grant was given to help the museum conserve Fontana's painting, The Visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, and to conduct deeper research into Lavinia's life and works. The gallery has had the painting for a long time. It was acquired in 1872, just eight years after the National Gallery of Ireland opened. This project did not mark the first conservation efforts, not by a long shot. No, this painting has had a a lot of uh, touching through the years. Uh, We mentioned the series of events that we know transpired to eventually land the painting in Ireland. When it was rescued from that fire in Paris, it had been cut from its frame because it is obviously too large to have been moved quickly otherwise. So it was reframed at some point in the late 1800s. That frame has also been recently conserved. Uh, It has received reinforcement to the frame to support the weight of the painting. That frame was also carefully cleaned to reveal the really beautiful gold leaf that was original to the framing. As varnish was removed from the painting under the supervision of conservators Maria Canavan and Letizia Marcatelli, It revealed the color and detail of the painting anew and then offered an opportunity to compare the faces long believed to be the Duke and Duchess of Mantua, to compare those with other paintings of the couple. It became apparent that the likenesses were not as close as had been thought. The conservators and researchers believe these images are a closer match to a different couple, Alfonso II d'Este and Margarita Gonzaga, who were the Duke and Duchess of Ferrara. In addition to the likeness to support this theory, the Duke would have died around the same time the painting was being completed, and that may account for why it doesn't appear on any documentation. It never would have been delivered to the original commissioner. There's no way to be sure, but it does make sense, this explanation. It also explains why there are some gaps in the information about its origination. The conservation work on this piece is really, really fascinating, and it included several stages, each of which, of course, had to be completed with incredible care. First, the painting had to be stabilized, meaning that paint that was pulling away from the the surface had to be adhered back to it, and the canvas had to be inspected and repaired in any areas that showed evidence of degradation. Then came that varnish removal we mentioned just a moment ago. There had also been some conservation retouching performed in the mid-20th century that had discolored over time. That had to be removed as well. The next step's really interesting. It was a layer of varnish. That means that any retouching that's part of this conservation effort can be removed at a later date. This will serve as a barrier between the old and the new pigment to avoid any confusion in the future. This and all other applications to the painting are intended to be reversible. The retouching technique used to fill in areas of the painting where color has flaked away is also intended to complete the painting without creating any question of what was original versus what was new. So this retouch painting is done using tiny dots and lines. If you're standing back from the painting, it looks complete. But if you get up really close, you can see that these sections aren't part of the original painting. 
This was all part of the research the gallery conducted through the Lavinia Fontana Conservation and Research Project. And that conservation has been completed. The painting is back on view now, which makes me want to go to Ireland soon. Lavinia Fontana's high profile as one of the first women in Europe to make a living as an artist has continued to be important to the discussion of representation equity in the art world. In February of 2022, the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia, acquired one of Lavinia's paintings as part of an ongoing effort on the part of the museum to address, quote, historical gender imbalance. The painting added to the NGV's collection is Mystic Marriage of St. Catherine. So many paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, uh, <laughs> I am very, very into her work. Like I said, we're going to talk about Mars and Venus <laughs> behind the scenes. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, I have a listener mail about Evangelista Torricelli, just from our listener, Alyssa, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been meaning to write this email for quite a while now, but hearing Evangelista Torricelli's name pop up on your episode on hypertension gave me the push I needed to finally do it. I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry, which also means I occasionally teach general chemistry courses. In a very impressive coincidence, I happened to listen to your episode about Evangelista Torricelli on the way to campus the day my students were covering the ideal gas law. I entered the room to find a very frustrated group of students. They had read the next section of the textbook the night before, and they didn't know why pressure could have such weird units in the equation, such as millimeters of mercury or a unit called tor. I knew the reason for the millimeters of mercury, but I had completely forgotten about Torricelli being the reason why we also call a millimeter of mercury a tor. They're exactly the same unit. Telling them the history behind the naming seemed to really get them interested in the material, which is more than I can often say about general chemistry classes. Thanks for helping me be the cool TA for the day. My now husband introduced me to the podcast at the start of the pandemic, and it has become one of my go-to listening pleasures for my 1.5-hour commute to work. That has given me plenty of time to listen to your current episodes while also working backward to catch what I've missed over the years. It's been a blast. Thank you for making my commute much easier. I have attached photos of my pair of kitties for your enjoyment. As a good and proper chemist, their names are Xenon and Copper. Xenon is my eight-year-old Torby girl, and Copper is my four-year-old black tabby boy. I love them dearly and hope their antics give you a smile. These cats are so stinking cute. There's one where they're grooming each other in front of a window, and it's a gorgeous little picture, and it makes me want to hug and kiss their faces. No. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, I love a little uh, cats grooming each other. It's one of my favorite things. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Alyssa. I'm glad we could help uh, make a little more sense for the day. I wish I had had fun things like that happen in my chemistry classes when I was younger. Uh, I probably would have liked chemistry a lot more. But (laughs) if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast.com at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History, and you can subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.